I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. On this episode of Newt's World... Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is one of the most formidable and insightful leaders of our time. In his new book, Bibi, My Story, he tells the story of his family, his path to leadership, and his unceasing commitment to defending Israel and securing its future. Born in 1949, in the wake of the Holocaust and at the dawn of Israel's independence, he was raised in a family with a prominent Zionist history, and he and his two brothers understood that the Jewish state was a hard-won, yet still precarious gift. He served as Prime Minister of Israel from 1996 to 1999, and again from 2009 to 2021. From 1967 to 1972, he served in the Elite Special Forces Unit of the Israeli Defense Forces. A graduate of MIT, he was appointed as Israel's ambassador to the United Nations from 1984 to 1988, then elected to the Israeli parliament as a member of the Likud party in 1988. And earlier this month, Israel's President Isaac Herzog invited him to form Israel's next government, paving the way for him to become Prime Minister of Israel again for a record sixth time, which will extend his record as Israel's longest-serving leader and someone who has transformed his nation. I'm especially delighted to have Bibi today because I think we first met about 1984 and a lunch with Jack Kemp in the house restaurant. And I have watched his career with amazement and admiration ever since. So I am really pleased to welcome my guest, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Bibi, 
I want to thank you for joining me on Newt's World, but I have to say, as busy as you are now forming a new government, can you take just a minute to tell us, I know this is not in the book because it happened since the book, but how you pulled this off. Once again, you have bounced back. And I don't know anybody who's had a greater capacity than you have for somehow continuing to win. Well, that's both a technical question and a philosophical question. I think the real answer is that, as I say in my book, I'm guided by a mission. And the mission is to protect the future of Israel, to ensure its prosperity, its security, and its permanence. And I think the voters understand that. Ultimately, you know, political power is meaningless by itself if it's not connected to a purpose. And at least in Israel, the voters believe that I have such a purpose, and I do. And I think that's what decides it. How do we do it technically? Oh, God, you really want to know this? First chapter of the next book, but I'll tell you what I did. You remember the train speeches that American presidents gave at whistle stops? Well, I didn't do it at whistle stops. I took a truck, like a rock band truck, you know? And I went around to dozens and dozens of locations in Israel. And instead of giving talks in a closed hall, I went into a neighborhood and 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people would come. And I talked to them and tell them why they should come out and vote. Because our main problem is there are more right of center voters in Israel than left of center. But the left of center voters typically come out to vote more than the right of center. A lot of Likud voters stayed home typically in the last 30, 40 years. That's what happened. I said, I got to break this. So I went on this neighborhood whistle stop and I had these mask (laughs) gatherings in which I spoke to them and urged them to each go to some Likud voters, whom a relative, a friend, a neighbor, who would stay home and tell them, don't stay home this time. Let's get out of this paralysis of repeated elections every year come out and vote and decide the vote this time. And it worked. That's it. That's my next chapter. That's great. I love the term neighborhood whistle stop. That captures a lot. You know, I mean, part of what I think has been consistent in your whole life and that you talk about in your book is the influence that your family had and that you learned from the very beginning from your father, which I must say as a fellow historian, I have the greatest respect for, and the work he did with the Encyclopedia Hebraica Share with us how your early life sort of shaped what became your entire life. Well, I grew up in a family that had a very prominent Zionist history. And my grandfather was a great rabbi, but also a great orator for the Jewish state, well before the Jewish state was established. And he saw as the founder of modern Israel, really, Theodore Herzl, saw in the beginning of the 20th century, he saw that Without a Jewish state, the Jewish people were doomed. They were doomed, certainly in Europe. They would be annihilated. They could see that very clearly. And my grandfather worked for it. My father worked for it. He came to the United States on the eve of the Second World War and argued for American support for the establishment of a Jewish state. He actually pioneered the platform. He didn't get very far because Roosevelt at the time was adamantly opposed to a Jewish state because he thought it would upset Britain, who curried favor with the Arabs. And my father had to break that ban that he had on Zionism. So he did something quite extraordinary at the time. He went to the Republicans, and he went to Senator Taft, and he said, you know, you really should support a Jewish state. It'll be your greatest ally in the Middle East. And Taft was convinced. And in the Republican platform of 1944, 
the Republican Party adopted a platform that supported a Jewish state. And Roosevelt was outraged. But sure enough, as my father had predicted, within three months, the Democratic National Convention also adopted a similar platform. So my father, in a twist of history, was in many ways the progenitor of America's bipartisan support for a Jewish state. Most people don't know that. And then he stayed around. After the war, he met with General Eisenhower and described this extraordinary conversation that my father had with Eisenhower, who had just come back victorious from the war. He still didn't run for president. He was the chief of the army. And he meets him in 1947. And he says, General, you really have to support a Jewish state. We'll be the strongest country in the Middle East. We'll have the strongest army and will block Soviet aggression and expansionism into the Middle East. And Eisenhower said to him, how would you do that? You're only 600,000. That's all we were at the time. How could you possibly do that? And he said, General, you've just seen in two world wars how we Jews fight for others. Can you imagine how powerful we'll be when we fight for ourselves? And Eisenhower was convinced. So he called the entire general staff of the United States to hear this young man who was in his 30s to hear him out because my father spoke of America's interest. He said Israel would be a bulwark of American and Western interests in the Middle East. And he was a great visionary. He could see the future as few people could. He had this remarkable capacity of insight as a great historian that he was. Then he left. Israel was founded. He left it. And I grew up in Jerusalem. My father was a scholar. He was the editor-in-chief of our equivalent of Encyclopedia Britannica. And I grew up in this very intellectual home in Jerusalem with my two brothers, my older brother, Jonathan Yoni, and my younger brother, Ido. And we were infused with this great miracle that had happened. The Jewish people had come back from death, from the ashes of the Holocaust. And we grew up, we thought, a normal life. It was anything but normal. Because just three years earlier, a million and a half Jewish babies were murdered by the Nazis. And here we were growing up in Jerusalem in a normal country with a normal state, with a normal army and so on, but it was anything but normal. It was miraculous. I was infused with that, and that informed my entire life. But now when you're eight years old, your parents take you to America. Right. And I gather that was a little bit of a culture shock. Not a little bit. It was a huge culture shock. First of all, I spoke not a word of English. I remember I was in public school 166 in Manhattan. Okay, I don't know a word of English. They play this strange game of American baseball, which I never understood. I liked football over time, American football, even though I played soccer. There is a World Cup now, so we're glued to it. And by the way, we're talking now is one of the star games is being played, so you can understand how much I value this conversation. I didn't know a word of English. They put me next to a little girl called Judy, PS 166, and her job was to teach me a few words of English every day. So I remember she had a big picture book and there was a picture of a dog. This is Spot. Spot is a dog. See Spot run. Run, Spot, run. That's how I learned English. I learned how to write it and speak it at the age of eight. But I caught on fairly quickly with the help of my mother, who even though she had been born in what is now Israel in 1912, she had been raised in Minnesota, believe it or not. So she taught me how to pronounce English properly. So I owe my English to my dear mother and to my dear Judy, whom I've never met. I hope I find her. That's wild. Maybe one of her friends will hear this and track her down. Now, when you go back home, you and your brothers join 
an elite special forces outfit for the Israeli Defense Forces. And when you're 22, as a captain, you're wounded while rescuing hostages from a hijacked plane. That must have been quite an experience. Well, it was. First of all, I got shot. So it was quite an experience, which I remember. I was shot by friendly fire because this was a very close quarters. But it wasn't quite as simple as that because my older brother had been wounded a few years earlier in 1967 in the Six-Day War. Three hours before the end of the war, he was shot. And I had a terrible premonition that he would die in battle. And I went to visit him in a hospital in North Israel. He'd been wounded on practically the last battle of the Six-Day War in the Golan Heights. And he lay in bed, I remember this, in the orthopedic ward in the hospital. And he was probably the only one around, you know, with all these patients who were lost limbs, they were amputated. And his arm was whole, but his elbow was shattered. And he was a disabled veteran. And believe me, when I saw him, I really was happy. He was, you know, you can ask, how could he be happy? Because he would never face the hell of war again. He would never face death again. So he was now released from the army. He went to study in Harvard. He made the dean's list. He would never join the army again. He came back after a year at Harvard, having been an exceptional student. He said, I can't stay there while the war of terror was gathering steam here. I have to be with my friends, my friends who are joining the army and the reserves. I can't have the luxury of being in Boston and enjoying life there. So he enrolled in the Hebrew University. I then joined the army into the special unit. And I was asked to go to officer school very early, unheard of almost in the unit, very early. And I didn't want to go because I would have to sign for two additional years. He said to me, you're going to officer school. And I said, well, I'm not going. He said, what do you mean you're not going? I said, well, I was accepted to Yale University, having finished in an American high school before. They accepted me three years in advance, unheard of. No Ivy League school would do that for me. But they said, okay, we'll, we'll accept you three years in advance. And I said to the commanding officer, I'm going to Yale University. And he said, look, you go back on a weekend pass. If you don't come back on Sunday, that's the beginning of our weekday, and you don't tell me that you're going to officer school, I'm throwing you out of the unit. Now, this was a fate worse than death. So I didn't know what to do. I went to talk over the weekend to my older brother, the disabled veteran. And I said, well, what am I going to do? He's going to throw me out of the unit. What should I tell him? And he thought for a second, Yoni, and then he said something that changed my life. He said, tell him, I'll go in your place. And I said, you, you're old. Mind you, he was all of 23. You're married. You're a disabled veteran. He's not going to take you. And he said, listen, just tell him to pull my file. On Sunday, I come back to this commanding officer, and he says to me, well, have you decided? And I said, yes, I'm not going but my older brother is willing to come in my place. He said, yeah, who's he? He said, his name is Yoni, pull his file. He pulls his file, he saw his outstanding cadet in officer school, enormous recommendations from his commanding officers. And he said, okay, bring him in. And we brought him in and now of course, <laughs> how do you get him through the induction medical exam? Because he can't open his arm completely. Now, well, they figured that out. They brought him to a, a recent immigrant doctor didn't know exactly the word for elbow and the word for joint was the same. He examined one knee, examined the other knee. He said, he's fine. And that's how my brother went into the unit. Now he's the officer. And a year later, a few months later, actually, I went to officer school too. So now we're two officers in the same unit. My younger brother joined and we were three in a tiny unit. Never, 
amounting to more than 100 fighters. This created a natural problem. Well, a few years later, a plane is hijacked and brought to Ben-Gurion Airport right near Tel Aviv, okay? And this plane was hijacked by four Arab terrorists, two men, two women. They're going to blow up the plane unless Israel releases 300 terrorists jailed in Israeli jails and flown to an Arab country of their choice. Well, nobody had ever rescued a hijacked plane before. Never happened before. We went to a hangar right next to this hijacked plane, and we practiced using Beretta pistols because we always use Kalashnikov assault rifles or Uzi submachine guns. We couldn't hide them in our boots because that was the plan. And anyway, their firepower would kill the passengers. And now everything's ready to go. Moshe Dayan, the defense minister, gets us dressed as mechanics. We're going to fix the plane and prepare it for takeoff. And everything's ready to go. Now my older brother Yoni comes in and he says, Bibi, I'm going too. I said, you're not going. You know, we're only 16 fighters in close quarters. We can't do that. He said, I'll go instead of you. I said, you can't go instead of me. These are my men. You can't go. He said, so we'll both go. And I said, Yoni, do you understand what you're saying? I mean, think of mother and father. Think of what would happen if something happened to one of us, to both of us. And then he said to me this extraordinary sentence. He said, Bibi, my life is my own and my death is my own. And so in sharp disagreement, we went to the unit commander. He decided for me, obviously, because these were my soldiers. Yoni was left behind with Moshe Dayan and Shimon Peres, who was the transport minister at the time. We went to the plane, dressed as mechanics, took our positions, ready to hear the whistle that would be the signal for us to storm the plane. We stormed the plane, killed two of the men and captured two of the women. I grabbed one of them by the hair. It was a wig. I grabbed her by a real hair, and I wanted to know where the charges were that they planted in the plane because they'd blow up the entire plane. And one of my fellow fighters comes with his Beretta pistol, and he says, Bibi, let me take care of her. And he slaps her on the face, releases a bullet that goes through her and through me, and it you know, hit my arm. Now I'm taken off the plane. This whole thing took two minutes. And except for one woman who was right next to me, she was shot and killed, a young woman. I'm lying now on the tarmac. Medic gave me some morphine to ease the pain. And I'm lying on the tarmac, and I see my brother Yoni rushing from afar, rushing in this terrible look of distress on his face. And he gets closer and closer, and as he stands over me, he sees this red splatter of blood on my white sleeve, and this huge grin spreads over his face. And he says to me, Bibi, you see, I told you you shouldn't go. And that was it. (laughs) So that's one of the stories that I tell. There are so many others, but... We had a very adventurous time, obviously. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hold up. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. You then do go to MIT and end up with a master's degree in management. Was that helpful to you? Oh, very much so. This was my practical mother. She said, I actually studied architecture for my first degree. And she said, if you're going to be an architect, you may as well know how to run your business. So I went to the business school, the Sloan School at MIT. The way it helped me was not merely that you got the fundamentals of computers or physics or engineering in in a very good school, but much more so that it got me into the Boston Consulting Group, which is where I met this eccentric genius, Bruce Henderson, who was a real genius. He must have been in his late 70s. And he calls me on the first day and he says, look, I know you'll go back to your country. So learn everything you can here, because one day it will help your country. I'm 27 years old. Okay. I don't know a thing about business. I just got into this, you know, elite consulting group, but I don't know anything about it. And I think this guy is completely bonkers. But he wasn't bonkers. He was absolutely right. Because it was there that I learned the fundamentals of competitive advantage and of capitalism. And that made a tremendous impression on me. America taught me what free markets can do, what free enterprise can do, what individual initiative can do, and what business firms can do. And so down the line, it helped me refashion Israel's economy to a free market one. So I have to credit my mother. (laughs) I have to credit MIT, but I have to credit Bruce Henderson. I remember watching you in that period when you were a minister, and you were fundamentally reshaping the Israeli economy towards a high-technology, capital investment, competitive, really international juggernaut of enormous impact. And I always thought that you were sort of in the same tradition as Reagan and Thatcher. I didn't realize about the MIT relationship and the Boston Group relationship, but you clearly really understood the potential of a competitive market and an investment in cutting-edge technology, and it revolutionized Israel. It did. I can tell you that when I became prime minister, 
or finance minister, I have to remember the exact numbers, but our GDP per capita trailed just about every country in Europe, in Western Europe. It was $17,000 per capita. Today, it's $54,000. We passed Japan, France, Britain, believe it or not, Germany too. That's the power of welding together high technology, which is produced constantly in the army, especially in the intelligence services, and free markets. Technology by itself does not produce wealth. Free markets do. But if you have the combination of free markets and technology, you have a tremendous engine of growth. And that's really what happened in Israel. We turned it from a semi-socialist state to a free market economy. But I had to do that because we went through a very severe economic crisis. And this one, Bill Clinton had it right, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. So I effected 80-some reforms, free market reforms, which cost me politically enormously, but ultimately changed the country. And you have a system where, as I understand it, where you have one particular military unit that's extraordinarily high tech, and the graduates of that unit are among the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. Yeah, and they make a lot of things. I mean, if you look at your cell phone, you know, a good chunk of it is produced in Israel. A good chunk of the software is produced in Israel. There are medicines that are produced in Israel. There's recycling of waters. There's precision agriculture. You know what that is? You put a drone in the sky, you put sensors on the ground, and then you know that you don't have to irrigate the entire field, just irrigate the ones that are parts. You get productivity gains. Things, it's endless. It's everywhere. And yes, this unit is a very good one. Israel, to survive, needs a very strong army. But in addition to a strong army, it has to have a very large brain, a very large intelligence brain. And we take the very smart people in the army, and then they go out and they become entrepreneurs or knowledge workers and so on. So a lot of this stuff, you, you use Waze in your car, whatever, that's made in Israel, you know, it was bought by Google. And it goes on and on and on and on. So Israel became a fount of innovation. And that's what free markets do. Free markets revolutionize Israel. I'm very proud of the fact that I led the charge, but I can tell you that <laughs> I described conversation I had when I became finance minister. After I became prime minister, I lost the first election, then went back into politics and as a finance minister. And that's when I really did all these reforms in the midst of one of the worst economic crises we had in Israel's history. And I remember my son was a little boy at the time. He said, Daddy, look at the skyline of Tel Aviv. It's nothing. And look at New York. I mean, look how many high rises they have there. And I said, relax, my boy. <laughs> Okay, your father will be finance minister, and you'll see how that changes. Well, if you come to Tel Aviv today, and I don't know when was the last time that you were in Israel, Newt, but it's a forest of skyscrapers. It's just changed. It's the power of free markets. It's very powerful. Now, tragically, in the middle of your successful education, if I remember correctly, your brother Yanni is the only soldier killed in the rescue operation at Entebbe. Yeah, four years after the airline hijacking rescue that I described before, I left the Army. He stayed in the Army. I left the Army to go to MIT and to the Boston Consulting Group and so on. He stayed, and he became the commander of this unit, and he led it to what Drew Middleton, the respected military analyst of the New York Times at the time, described as an operation without precedent in military history. And it's probably the most spectacular rescue of modern times. He led his men into the heart of Africa because the terrorists would no longer land hijacked planes in Israel after what we did to them. 
So they figured, well, we'll land them in the middle of Africa with, and Idi Amin's Uganda, this dictator, and that's it. Israel will have to capitulate. Well, they were wrong. And Yoni landed with his forces in the dark of night in this airfield in Entebbe, Uganda, stormed the old terminal where the terrorists kept the hostages, killed the terrorists, killed the Ugandan troops who were helping them, destroyed the MiG aircraft that could give chase to the planes going back to Israel with the freed hostages. But there was only one military casualty, and it was him. And that was a moment that when my younger brother, Ido, told me, I was studying at MIT at the time, and he told me this, I have to say that it was like dying, but it was actually not the worst moment of my life because I traveled seven hours to Ithaca, New York, to Cornell University, where my father was teaching at the time. And I had to tell my parents, and I can tell you that that was a moment of sheer agony. There's nothing else that I can compare it to, just sheer agony. But I drew a lot of strength from the courage of my parents, their dignity, their remarkable strength. And this event changed my life and steered it to its present course because I found a way to overcome inconsolable grief by devoting myself to the cause that my brother died in, fighting international terrorism, and went on to recruit many leading voices in the Western world to a new approach at fighting terrorism. And the approach basically said, you don't just fight the terrorists, you fight the terrorist states that make their grisly deeds possible. And that took a few years, but it changed the attitudes of the West towards terrorism. That thrust me into public diplomacy, but ultimately into diplomacy itself and from there to politics. Both your own history and the history of Israel have been dramatically different if you had never gotten into politics. What led you to decide for public office? I got a phone call for somebody we both know, Moshe Arons, the late Moshe Arons. He attended a conference that I did in memory of my brother. I set up this institute to fight terrorism, and I organized an international conference to which I invited Scoop Jackson and George Bush Sr. and many others, the noted writer Paul Johnson from Britain, and many, many others from Europe and from the United States to adopt this new policy on terrorism. Arons had been to this conference, and he was appointed ambassador of Israel to Washington. And he was so impressed with the conference that he said, I want to meet the guy who organized that conference. So he called me up and he said, I'm going to Washington. I want you to be my deputy in Israel's embassy in Washington, D.C. And I knew Aaron's. I respected him. And I thought, well, that makes sense. So I told him, why not? And that's how I got to Washington. I became the deputy ambassador and then became the ambassador at a young age, at 33, to the U.N., and then made my way back to Israel after that. But I suppose all of that would not have happened had my brother Yoni not told me that he would go in my place and probably would not have happened had he not fallen in Entebbe. That shifted my life completely. I can't have this conversation and a chance to educate the many people who listen to our podcast without asking you for your advice and your analysis of the way in which we've totally mishandled Iran and how you see that playing out. I mean, it's sort of the central question of survival, I think, in the region. I don't think only in the region. It's certainly a question of survival for Israel because Iran openly says death to Israel. But they also say and chant death to the United States. They call us the small Satan. They call you the big Satan because they see us, by the way, correctly, as a bastion of Western civilization, exactly as my father 
that told Eisenhower decades earlier. And without Israel, the Middle East would collapse completely and be overrun by radical Islamic forces, and in this case, by Iran. I've devoted a good chunk of my life and my five stints as prime minister to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. Because if Iran has nuclear weapons, and coincidentally, the ballistic missiles to deliver them, they would deliver them not only to Israel, they can do that already without ballistic missiles if they had the bomb, but they could deliver them to any city in the United States. The threat of Iran is a threat to Western civilization. It's not the same thing that if Holland has nuclear weapons or the Ayatollahs have nuclear weapons. All nuclear proliferation is bad, but some of it is catastrophic. And to have the Ayatollahs who have a distorted worldview and a distorted goal of overcoming the infidels, to have them armed with weapons of mass death would change history. In a series of moves that I can't describe, obviously, in detail in my book, except one, how we pilfered. I sent the Mossad to the heart of Tehran to take the secret atomic archive that Iran had been hiding in a dilapidated warehouse in the heart of Tehran. Our agents, did you see the movie Argo, by the way? This is Argo on super steroids. They had thousands of Iranian security personnel and police chasing after our guys within Tehran. They made it out. They brought half a ton of material into Israel, which proved that Iran was lying through its teeth when it said it never sought to develop nuclear weapons. It was there black and white. You could see it in CDs. You could see it in files. You can see it in videos. I mean, the whole thing was exposed. And this helped, I think, in galvanizing the United States and President Trump to pull out of that horrible Iran deal. I definitely think that Iran is the great danger not only to us, but also to our Arab neighbors, to the entire world, to the United States, to everyone. You should not sign this bad deal with Iran that would pave its way with gold, with hundreds of billions of dollars to export its terrorism and to complete its nuclear arsenal, which will be aimed at both of us. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. 
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. What was your sense of the Abraham Accords? The Abraham Accords grew out of two things, really. The rise of Iranian power and the threat it posed to the Arab world and to the entire Middle East, and the rise of Israeli power. I had long believed that even though my father's generation had worked to reestablish the Jewish state in our ancient homeland, the land of Israel, it was left to my generation to assure its permanence. And the only way you could assure its permanence was to assure that Israel was strong, because history doesn't really favor the moral and just countries. If you're immoral, unjust, cruel, dictatorial, murderous, and you have superior weapons and money and the will to use them, you'll overcome free societies. It almost happened in World War II. And in order to prevent that, Israel has to be strong. To be strong, it needed a strong army. To have a strong army... You know, to have F-35s, submarines, tanks, drones, cyber, and so on, that costs money. To have money, you need a free economy. So that's what led me to revolutionize Israel's economy. And that also enabled us to get a very, very strong army and a superb intelligence, which led to diplomatic power. Because now the Arab countries around us began to look at Israel differently, not as their sworn enemy, but as their indispensable ally encountering Iran's threat to them. And so that came to a head in 2015 in an event that I describe in great detail in my book, my decision to go to a joint session of Congress and speak out against the proposed Iran deal. Now, you know, it wasn't an easy thing, Newt. You don't go challenging an American president, President Obama, whom I respected. And by the way, who I worked out then after the deal I worked out a support package for Israel's security, which I am grateful for. But I couldn't agree with him. I had to disagree with him on the Iran nuclear deal because I thought my country's existence was being jeopardized. So in the middle of the speech in Congress, my delegation received calls from Gulf states. And they said, we can't believe what your prime minister is doing. He's challenging the American president. And that led to secret meetings in 2015 with Gulf leaders that laid the foundation for the Abraham Accords. They wanted to partake both of Israel's strong stance against Iran and also of our technology, our civilian technology, which, you know, changes life for everyone. We needed an American administration, the administration of President Trump, to complete the deal. It took me a few years to persuade President Trump and his staff that we have four peace agreements that we could make with the Arab states And when they were convinced, we did just that. So the Abraham Accords, the stark Abraham Accords with the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain, with Sudan, and with Morocco, took place because of this gradual series of contacts with the Arab states over a few years in which they understood that it's in their interest 
to make this alliance with Israel. And also something else. I told them, listen, I couldn't persuade the American administrations. I tried to persuade previous administrations too. But they were gung-ho. We have to make peace with the Palestinians. You're never going to get peace with the Arab world unless you first solve the Palestinian problem. And I said, that's going to be a problem because the Palestinians don't want peace. They want a peace without Israel. They don't want a state next to Israel. They want a state instead of Israel. So if we wait for them, we'll wait another quarter of a century. That's the last time we had a peace treaty was a quarter of a century earlier. You'll wait another half century. And I had to go around the Palestinian veto to the Arab world. And in fact, once we got over that, you know, the sky's the limit. One of my goals, obviously, is to continue to block Iran's quest for nuclear weapons. But the other thing is to expand the circle of peace beyond our dreams, finish the Arab-Israeli conflict, then circle back to the Palestinians, and maybe they'll finally agree to the idea of a Jewish state, because that's why they don't make peace with us. They don't want a Jewish state in their midst. You may remember that when I was speaker, I offered off the bill to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And we finally, with President Trump, got it done. I remember also that my first session, my first speech to a joint session of Congress was with you. By the way, you're in my book. <laughs> I mentioned that because you were speaker at the time, and I remember that very well. It's the same theory, which is they have to accept the fact of Israel in order to ever get to an agreement. The fact and the right of Israel. They might accept it as a fact, but it has to be a fait accompli. It has to be something that they cannot break, that they meet an iron wall, that you have to disabuse them of the idea that they could ever overcome Israel. And secondly, that the Jewish people have a right to have their state in their ancestral homeland. So the Arab world is gradually and actually rapidly moving to that acceptance, whereas the Palestinians will probably be the last to know. And once you shift the equation, they're not going to be the first in order to get the others. You get the others, and they'll be the last. If they wake up earlier, I'll be very happy. I doubt that that will happen. I want you to know how much I personally appreciate, right in the middle of your creating a new government, now, I know you've done it often enough, that's probably not quite as big a challenge as the first time. But still, I know how busy you are and how complex the politics of Israel are. So the fact that you would take this amount of time to chat with us, I really want to thank you for joining me. And I want you to know that your new book, BB My Story, is going to be right there on our show page. And I encourage everybody to get a copy of it. It's a great honor to have you on. You are a truly heroic figure of extraordinary impact on the world. And I want to thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Well, I want to thank you, Newt, for everything you did over the years to support Israel, to support our incredible alliance, and also to tell you that I'm very, very gratified by the reaction that the book is receiving from the American public. I just received a note that it's number one on Amazon, on heads of state, presidents, whatever, biographies. I don't know all these guys. It's pretty much high there. And it's receiving five stars. So that's good. I'm glad people like it. You know, and I'm very grateful also to the previous government. It didn't last long. But it gave me a year to write my book. You know that it's impossible, impossible to write a book when you're in office. So it was a welcome respite. But I'm back in going into the messy bog of politics now that I've written it. So please read it. I'll be happy to receive your comments. And again, I want to thank you for everything you've done for Israel and for our alliance over the years. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Benjamin Netanyahu. You can get a link to buy his new book, BB My Story, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 
and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American. Race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.